Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And out of those 260 chapters, 229 of them have citations from the Old Testament. Uh, don't try and take notes tonight. You, there are notes. In fact, Nita's printed out enough. Probably everyone here is going to be able to get. This is the revised version over here that we give to the, the leaders. But it came out of 10 pages. So here's only a back-to-back with the skeleton outline. But if you want to go more comprehensively into this teaching tonight, which is just too big for one night, you can find those notes on our our website. So very interesting that, uh, Janet, what did you do to this on Sunday? You obviously preached up a storm, babes, but it's, uh, so Jesus used the Old Testament to, to speak about himself in Luke 24, coming to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Steve, maybe you can just keep up with me. Can you do it manually at the back? You're gonna ha- we'll have to, go, have to go quite quick if we can. Um, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness should be preached in his name. So we see very clearly that Jesus looked to the scriptures to speak about himself. And the disciples learned well, and they followed. And there, there are several ways even though these are kind of circles that intersect with circles, and there's some overlap, there are basically seven ways that the New Testament writers use the Old Testament scriptures to get to Jesus. And the first of these is what we call redemptive historical progression. It's, if you like, the big picture. That... Matthew, in his genealogy, that's that first chapter where he gives you all the begets and all the names, he reaches right back, as does Luke, to Adam, to David, to Moses, to the prophets. And he uh, doesn't just write that chapter to take up space, but he writes that chapter to point out that there's this big picture of the scripture. Thank you of the scripture that we are, there we go. Thank you, Stevie. So that's it, 229. Jesus used the scripture to speak of himself. That was on the road to Emmaus and finding Christ in the Old Testament. The first is redemptive historical progression. I'm not going to, for time's sake, we're just going to jump straight into it. Um, This is the progress of the Bible history of how he redeems mankind, from Genesis to Revelations. 
there's what some theologians have referred to a golden thread that runs through. From the beginning when God made a promise after man fell that he would redeem the situation by the foot of the one who would crush Satan. There was a redemptive flow that he promised to Abraham that you'd be a father of many nations, of a great nation. And then it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then they had the, the, the 12 patriarchs. By the time they followed Joseph into Egypt, they were 70 in number. Not quite a large nation yet. But in their time in Egypt, Bible says they multiplied prolifically and they expanded and grew as a nation. Matthew reaches back into this and he... Uh, is it jump back again? Okay. This must be a really important topic, the progress. So Matthew begins with the genealogy. David, your throne will be established forever. Uh, this is not working still. Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is uh, the, the big story, if you like. In the book of Acts, we see that Peter, his first sermon after the healing at the at the gate, remember leaping and wa- jumping and leaping and praising God? He, he gives this amazing sermon. It's like nearly a whole chapter. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 18, uh, Acts 3 from Genesis. And likewise, Stephen, just before he got stoned, not the modern day Stephen, the old Stephen, just before he got stoned, he gives a sermon before his persecutors in Acts chapter 7. And there he draws from Genesis 12, 15, from Exodus 2, 14, 3, 5, Deuteronomy 18, and Exodus 32, from Amos 5, and from Isaiah 66. All in that sermon he gives, these passages appear. And what they were doing by preaching in this way was to link the stages of redemption history to the past. They were using the story of God's plan of redemption, his historical unfolding of his plan to lead to Christ. We see that Paul, Paul did this as well. Hang on, Paul, he gives a sermon in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of of Pisidia, and uh, he begins by making, he's showing that God made Israel great in Egypt and gave them the promised land. And he cites from, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55, uh, from Psalm 16 and Isaiah 49. Once again, the New Testament writers, using the the redemptive historical story of redemption as a way to arrive at Jesus in the New Testament. Paul, throughout his epistles, often makes those references. Quite amazing, out of 250 chapters that 220 have got citations from the Old Testament. You can see why one evening is not really enough. I've spent time just poring over and reading and, and, and familiarizing myself again with those passages, but this is a, a year of Monday night. To, to, tonight, the goal of it is not only giving you a whole lot of information, but just for you to see that the, the, the writers of the New Testament um, had integrity towards the scripture. And in that scripture, like Jesus, saw the coming of the Messiah. And they preached Jesus out of those 
Old Testament scriptures. The second, the second way, the second of seven ways that speak how the New Testament authors did this was this thing called promise fulfillment. Now, like I said right up front, these kind of circles are interlapping. So the redemptive historical progression includes promises and fulfillments, but we treat it as a separate uh, category just to um, see how they made use of that. And the first one we see in Matthew, 10 times he repeats, all this took place to fulfill what had happened, uh, what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. 10 different times he says, he makes that statement. Um, This was to fulfill what was spoken. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Many examples. It's like Matthew saw in the scriptures. They didn't call them the Old Testament scriptures because they were just the scriptures for them. He saw these like sunflowers all over the place. And when the sun rose, they all turned and faced the same way. And he draws, uh, this had to take place to fulfill. There were promises made. Now, some of those promises had fulfillment in the days that they existed. There were some promises to Abraham that were fulfilled in Abraham's time. But the big covenant of you will be a great nation uh, goes all the way to David. And then even in David, some of the promises are fulfilled in uh, his historical cultural world. But again, God says, I will give you an everlasting throne. And that couldn't have been for David. And again, some of the promises were fulfilled, but they were like looking over mountain ranges. And they all look like they're right on top of each other. But only an an aerial view will show you how far they separated. Promises and the fulfillment. Jesus often spoke of himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Uh, Jesus went into the temple and he read Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me. And then what did he say straight after that? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We see that Philip um, in Acts 8 also speaks about these promises that had to be fulfilled. Peter in Acts 3 says, In this way God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Promises being fulfilled. Mark says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way, make. Again, promises being fulfilled that had been spoken in the old covenant. Luke also writes and says, The events that have been fulfilled among us. And in Luke's writing in the gospel, he gives Mary's song. Remember in chapter 2, 3, how it unfolds. As Mary, Elizabeth comes, Mary sings, Zechariah prophesies. Uh, Mary's song includes the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and the descendants. Then we see Zechariah prophesying in the temple just in the next chapter. God has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouth. Again, promises being fulfilled. And then at the end of Luke's gospel, He says, everything written about me, Jesus talking, in the law of Moses and prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. So the New Testament writers, uh, among Paul as well, in Acts 13, he speaks about 
this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. As he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people. Uh, and Romans 1 verse 2, the well-known, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. So this was promise and fulfillment. The New Testament writers used that as a way to get to Jesus. So not only did they point to the redemptive historical progression, but they pointed to specific promises, even promises that had fulfillment in their time, but were yet to be fulfilled. The third way that uh, New Testament writers did that was through this thing called typology. Now, typology is also in the big circle of redemptive historical progression, but it's not promise fulfillment. It's taking a person that is referred to by the New Testament writers to show who Jesus is, or taking an institution, or like the temple, or taking um, an event and, and, and carrying that through Christ's crucifixion to show who he was. Typology is a very big topic. Again, we could spend a lot of time. Uh, the purpose here tonight is just to explain that New Testament typology is essentially the tracing of the constant principle of God's working in history, revealing a recurrent rhythm in past history, which is taken up more fully and perfectly in gospel events. That's a great definition uh, on typology. Paul was the first to use this word typos. Remember, uh, these New Testament writers didn't have any uh, uh, reference to make outside of themselves in commentaries or dictionaries. or They, they, they had to go to the Scripture. And, and Paul is the first one to use this word typos. And he uses it in a prefig- prefiguring of the future that, was, that had taken place in prior history. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, he uses the word typos to describe the, wil- the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. And also in Romans 5.14, he says, and Adam was a typos of Christ. He uses the word type, and that's where the subject of typology has come. The subject of typology has been abused. It's made all kinds of weird things out of all kinds of wonderful things. But, um, and during the medieval times, there, there, there was a lot of allegoricalism. That's that fancy word we learned in the first session around uh, making things say things that the actual original author never meant. Remember in our exegesis class, the Bible won't mean today what it didn't mean then. And that's the goal of good Bible study is to get as close to what was meant. So by going to the New Testament writers and see how they found Jesus in types is the safest way to go about typology and not make, you know, Moses walking. Moses is clearly a type, as we'll see, of, of Christ. But, you know, going through the Red Sea and it opened and the waves came, then, then they'll allegorialize that and say, you know, the waves coming over were the wings of the angels. And the wings of the angels, you know, the splashing on top was the feathers. And, you know, then they would sprinkle feathers over their followers to sanctify them and get into all weird stuff. Uh, I think they still do that in some places. But, um, so we see, we see Matthew, um, he sees the typology of Israel um, as a type of Christ. So there, not just a person, but a, the nation itself. 
Matthew writes about the child of promise. Who was that? Jesus. Uh, delivered from Herod's slaughter. Uh, coming out of Egypt. Passing through the water. Sorry, jumping a bit. Entering the wilderness for a time of testing. Uh, calling out 12 sons of Israel. Giving the law from the mount. Performing 10 miracles. Sending out the 12 to conquer the land. This, feeding the multitudes with manna from heaven and being transfigured before his disciples. So we, we see that Matthew is continually drawing pictures from the nation, from Israel themselves. In John, Jesus says, Just as Moses was lifted up, up as a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Again, a type. Moses, clearly a type. So when we know the New Testament refers to a type, then we can go back and study that type and uh, extract from it some amazing teachings and truths. And uh, I was so tempted. I had 25 pages of stuff. I had to reduce to two pages. So um, this is a big topic. Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, this is my blood. Again, so the blood was a type. Blood of the new covenant which is poured out. We see blood in the old covenant. We can legitimately say Jesus saw that as a type. There was a comparison. John 6 says, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And then John the Baptist clearly starts off the ministry of Jesus by saying, Here is the Lamb of God. Again, a type of Jesus, the Lamb, a type of Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews is just so amazing and, and full of, of types. For example, Melchizedek. Uh, it says in, in, in uh, Hebrews 7, 1 and 2, that he was a priest of the Most High God. He was a king of righteousness, the king of peace, resembling the Son of God. Clearly, Melchizedek is a type. Moses is a type. We see in Hebrews 3.5, it says, Moses was faithful in all God's house, yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. The high priest was a type of Christ as well. We see in Hebrews 2.17 that the high priest made a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And this foreshadowed the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And even the high priest uh, himself was a type. And then the true tabernacle in Hebrews 9.24, it says, Moreover, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, which is a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the Old Testament tabernacle foreshadows the true tent the true dwelling place of the one who tabernacled among us. And the New Testament writers use this language and give us uh, insight into what we can legitimately go back and study. That's why there's, there's uh, plenty books on the subject of the temple and the tabernacle because it's so clearly portrayed in the New Testament. And even the first covenant and the second one, which is a better covenant, so the first covenant is a type of a superior covenant that was to come. Right, so we threw three. 
You got three? We're going to do a little test in a moment. So there's this redemptive historical story that the writers draw from. Within that are these promises and their fulfillment, and then there are these types that they use. Then we come to analogy. And here, even in types, there there are analogies. But this, when we talk here about analogies, we're referring specifically to the analogy of God's relationship with the nation of Israel reflected in Christ's relationship with the church. So it's a slight different, it's a, it's a, a slightly more compacted view of an, using analogy that the New Testament writers did. The relationship of God to Israel to that of Christ to the church. For example, in Malachi 3.1, see I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. God was sending Malachi to the uh, remnant that was still in captivity. And then John the Baptist comes along. At least uh, Jesus referred to the one sent before him. I'm not sure if that's 11.10 or 10.11, but you know the scripture about John the Baptist. Um, In Ezekiel, God is referred to as the good shepherd, 34.11. And then in John 10, we all know that beautiful passage, I am the good shepherd. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as the bride of Yahweh in Jeremiah's ear. Paul, as we know, in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, talks about the church as being the bride of Christ. Uh, Peter, jump there. Peter speaks of you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That was a quote that God spoke about Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Exodus chapter 9. So God's heart towards his people in the Old Testament gives us this analogy of how Christ feels about his people in the New Testament. Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We should know that scripture very well. That came from Joel uh, chapter 3, when God speaks about that to his people through Joel. If you call upon me, you'll be saved. And then in Isaiah, he says to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear that I'm Lord. Paul uses that same to refer between Christ and his church. If we bow and confess his name, we will be saved. Even God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his son, who was Israel, would Uh, be taken up in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So we see that the New Testament writers use this analogy of the father heart to to the nation. You know, there was a lot of grace back in the Old Testament. God was very gracious to his people, very loving. And yes, revelation progresses in our understanding of God. That's why we can't build all our doctrines out of the book of Corinthians. Aren't you glad about that? Can you imagine if we built all our doctrines of who Jesus is, who God is, how church should operate? Come on. If we just built on one book, same would be true if we built on Deuteronomy or if we built on just a part of the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So we have a whole plethora of, of revelation that we can build our theology on. And knowing the big picture theology helps us to exegete the small little passages where God seems to have woken up grumpy with a headache and he just wants to go and smash the people. And when we look in the big picture and we get understanding of that, 
Sometimes it's truly stated, not a statement of truth, because truth has to line up with the whole revelation of Scripture, not just one verse. The fifth way of um, how the New Testament writers found uh, Christ and brought him in to the New Testament is this longitudinal themes. The New Testament writers preached Christ by extending Old Testament themes to Christ and then reinterpreting them in the light of Jesus. Now, there's dozens of themes. Worship uh, was a theme that ran through Scripture. Redemption is a theme that runs through Scripture. Um, There are several. The one I'll highlight now is sacrifices. It was a theme that ran through from Genesis all the way that they drew on in New Testament writings to show Christ. The Old Testament had the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering. If you study those up for yourself, you'll see what a beautiful message they carry if you take them to the cross. The New Testament speaks about Christ's once and for all sacrifice. We don't have to sacrifice anymore. It's a theme that runs through. But there is a sacrifice that's still required of us as believers, modern-day believers. And uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5 that we are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, the, so there's longitudinal themes, starting in the Old Testament, developing, growing. A good concordance would help you navigate through some of those themes. Then the sixth way. So are, are you tracking? Is it uh, working? I'll get back to summary just now and then see if you remember all six. And you'll get a free cup, all seven, and you'll get a free cappuccino on, on Sunday if you haven't written it down. <laughs> the Bible makes use of, um, of contrasts. This is um, focusing on the discontinuity that Christ brings. The, 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 the previous five ways focused on the continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus. And that's what the authors used. Um, but we see that there are some major differences in the way that God reestablishes things that are contrary, and there's a contrast. And it's those contrasts that the New Testament writers draw out of the old scriptures, out of the scriptures, and make Jesus real. For example, how he establishes his kingdom. In the Old Testament, um, he, he ordered his people to utterly destroy the sinful nations living in the promised land with their altars, their pillars, their sacred poles, their idols. But in the New Testament, Jesus sends them out to go make disciples of all nations and teaching them everything, teaching them about the bread of life, teaching them that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like one little boy in Sunday school asked when he got home, Mom? In the New Testament, did, did God become a Christian? <laughs> no, one story, but dispensational historical progression as we move through and we see God, even in the contrast, how, God, uh, how the authors showed the gospel. So we can observe a major difference between the manner in which Israel was expected to fill the requirements of the Old Covenant. Just to read through Deuteronomy 
and the manner in which Christians are expected to fill the requirements of the new. So there's a contrast, can you see? And the New Testament writers have to lean upon those contrasts. So they don't bring them over exact into the new covenant. They have to feed them through the cross. And Jeremiah started to see this about the covenant when he said, it will not be like the covenant that I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, a covenant that they broke. There was a Sinai covenant, and Jeremiah has really started to see the new covenant. So it's that contrast of covenants that bring us to Jesus. Paul also saw this, and he said, You show that you are letters of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Can you see the contrast? Taking out of those pictures, out of those types, out of those promises, the things that were, had turned around. Even Jesus on the mount, when he taught and he kept on using the phrase, you have heard it was said, but I say. Again, the contrasts drawing out. Hagar's message uh, in chapter 2 was about the, the lepers. If you touch a leper, you'll be contaminated. What does Jesus come and do? Comes to heal the lepers and then give us a mandate to love them and reach out to them. And there's many more of those that we could look at. Then we come to the final one. And like I said to Janet, it breaks my heart to just have to rush over all this other information. But it's not just about getting information. It's about just getting an appreciation for the richness of the Scripture. Yet these guys didn't have the luxury of dictionaries and concordances. and They had the Scriptures that were given to them through the prophets, the recorded redemption story. And from those, they saw this crimson thread. That gives us such an appreciation for the whole Bible. That gives us an appreciation for why we need to do good Bible study, exegesis. Because different things meant by the author, and the t- the, rather, the Bible today won't mean what it didn't mean to them. But even the contrasts can be used to show that we have a superior covenant, a better covenant. This last one is quite an interesting you may have, uh, well, let me give you the definition. Christophany, very fancy word for the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. So the New Testament writers also saw not only promises and fulfillment, types and their counterpart, contrasts. They saw actual times when Jesus was, well, when Christ because Christ, Jesus, was not, didn't come to life when Mary had a baby. Christ is eternal. Jesus, the man, was born from Mary. But Christ, Jesus, lived eternally with the Father. And again, you can get weird on this topic and make everything a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. There are some legitimate ones. You might have heard... Uh, in Daniel, the th- as, um, Meshach, Yoshek, and Abangala were thrown into the furnace. And there was the fourth man in the fire. And he was like unto the Son of Man. 
So there's a hint in that. Uh, that one's not mentioned by the New Testament writers, but that would be quite a strong case to present as a pre-incarnate Christ. For those, sorry, I'm, I'm rushing ahead of terminology. Incarnate means God when he was born. The incarnation. But the pre-incarnation are before he was born on earth. Um, and, and there are a few of those. Paul actually goes a little bit further and he treats this theologically. Only as Paul would. And um, Paul reads Christ wherever kurios appears in the Septuagint passages. And he divulges this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 from Exodus chapter 13 to 14. And in Corinthians, Paul is thinking of Christ as the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt, leading them through his presence manifest in the angel. That's a long way around to say that Paul saw Jesus back in the activity of the angel that led Israel through. And when he goes to the Septuagint, which if you were here last week, you would have heard Anne speaking about, external evidence of the Bible. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, which was about 120 BC, and was um, the scripture in Greek that Paul used. And Paul, when he took that, he took the word kurios, which was the Lord the name Lord, we have it translated as Lord. Not the word Yahweh um, or the word Adonai, uh, but the word kurios. And he points to it in 1 Corinthians 10 as referring to Jesus Christ or to Christ. Christ was the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. As the angel of God in the pillar of cloud, the Lord guarded and guarded the Israelites in the Exodus. These are just points that come out of that passage. He led them from ahead, then went behind them to remain there through the night as a pillar of fire. There he screened them off from the pursuing Egyptians. And Israel saw the mighty hand, the things that Kurios, and Paul when he translated this, he uses the word Christ, did to the Egyptians. And Israel saw the mighty hand of things that Curious did. And the people, Paul didn't have this problem. And the people feared Curious. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, he writes the word Christ. And they believed God and Moses, his servant. And, and the cloud of which Paul speaks in the cloud of Exodus. And he says, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now some of the more modern translations got a bit nervous around this curious thing and they try and just make it L-O-R-D. They play nice and safe. Some of the older translations like the New King and the New King James and the ASV and the King James, they just translated literally um, as it was in the Greek. Christos. And it says uh, in a very common one that is translated Christ is where Paul starts off and he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, (laughs) 
under the cloud. You ever felt under the cloud? And were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, we don't have time here, but I'm, I'm going to teach this one Sunday. Is when you actually look at what that rock represented to the nation of Israel. And the judgment that God said, when he said, strike that rock. And Moses had to stand on top of it and represent the people. And the significance and the allegorical, uh, not allegorical, the uh, symbolic um, pointing from a top to the reality, from a shadow to the substance that's found in the rock that accompanied them, that Paul clearly says, and the rock was Christ. It's a fascinating study there just on its own. Sorry, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, all that, all that what I've just read now is Paul's take in 1 Corinthians 10 from Exodus 13 and 14 when he narrates back um, using the probably the Septuagint where he translates directly from Kurios to Christos. So we have a strong New Testament precedent set right there to see Christ being pre-connate, pre-incarnate, which goes to his deity, which goes to the fact that he's God. And it would, it would support that teaching and argument as well. But here we're just looking at how the New Testament writers reached back into the Scriptures to teach on Jesus. So we see in summary, redemptive historical progression, promise and fulfillment, typology, analogy, longitudinal themes, contrasts, and Christophanies that the New Testament writers used to get to Christ. They didn't just suck it out of their thumbs. They went to the Word. They went to the Scriptures. They studied them. And they'd learned well from Jesus, who'd said to his disciples, all this had to be fulfilled that was written about me in Moses and the prophets. What should happen to the Christ? His death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his glorification. Now, I said earlier that these seven topics are, there's overlapping, like those circles. I'd say the middle circle that touches all of them is the progressive, redemptive, the redemptive historical progression, rather. And it touches on all the others. But there's something else I want to just bring out here. When we're talking about types from the Old Covenant coming into the New Covenant, the way we teach and preach those and believe those, we can very easily fall into the trap of going to the Old Testament and teaching passages out of the Old Testament as um, moralistic. How to live better lives. How to, you know, live, live more righteously. The temptation and, and what happens in most denominations uh, where law and grace are mixed is that they take those scriptures and they try to plot the, the type or the symbol 
the person and institution, they try and apply, like that arrow goes up, to the principle of courage or how to keep holy or how to war to win. So you can take David against Goliath and his courage in the face of adversity and against odds much greater than himself. And you can take and teach from that, come on, guys, we need to have a Goliath. We need, we need to have a, a David spirit that pulls down the Goliaths. We need courage here. You know, let me give you five steps of courage. Let me give you five steps how to kill your giants. Come on, guys, we need to be Davids. Come on, let's get on our feet and say, yes, we need courage. Give us courage, Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, and they're good. But they fail when we make the principle straight to application. And we leave the cross out. Because David had to go through the cross. He was a type of Jesus. Who was the great giant slayer? Jesus. Joshua's wars against the heathen could lead us into some form of um, militant strategy and jihad movement. We find scriptures for that stuff. If we look for it. And we could have liberation theology, like out of the Old Testament, and use those same passages and, and if we don't take them through the cross. We've got to take all those Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Jesus was the giant slayer. Jesus was the one who fought the enemies and succeeded and conquered and came off victorious. And the message we need to hear, and even the teachings of Jesus himself, like the Good Samaritan, have to go through the cross. They were spoken before the new covenant. And if I only got up and, and if we only believed that we've got to now be like good Samaritans, come on guys, be a good Samaritan, and we don't take it through the cross and realize that Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who poured out the healing. Jesus is the one who gave hope to the hopeless. He was the one who stopped and all the other religions of the world bypassed the, 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 the real pain and anguish and, and, and sinfulness. It was Jesus who stopped and got down and brought the balm of Gilead to those people. That, I understand, yes, the Samaritan is such a, such a great principle. It's what I should do. It's what I should be. But couldn't and didn't. But Jesus did. Now, what I can do because that Jesus did it. I live a life, first of all, guilt-free with no condemnation, but I have Christ in me, the hope of glory. I have an unfair advantage over the enemy because I'm just executing the vengeance of God on his enemies. I'm not the one having to fight the fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. So whether we take Old Testament types and institutions and people, if we don't take it through Christ's victory, we end up with a message that's just moralistic and try and be a better person and try and be more honorable and you need to have more integrity. And of course those things are right and good, but it's how we get there that's different. We don't get there by going straight from the person to the principle to the application. We go from the principle to Jesus, the only person who lived the perfect life. Can you see why it's important to, not to mix grace and law? Can you see why it's important what we've been doing for these last few years? When we take it through Christ and His victory, the principle comes. That's what I should have done. That's what I couldn't have done. But that's what Jesus has done. 
And now because Jesus has done it, greater is he than in me than he that's in the world. Amen. And I've even left a bit of time for questions. That is quite remarkable, Janet. It's a good job I trimmed down from 25 pages, eh? <laughs> Steve's got a question. Yeah, I think, I think you could because it, it says that, that he was like, like unto the Son of God. Mel, Steve says you could put Melchizedek as a Christophany as well, a preoncanate. Uh, there was the angel with Jacob. That it's not mentioned by New Testament writers, but once again, it's not going too far off. And the reason why we try and stick as best as we can with who the, what the New Testament writers did, is because if you don't do that, you can go off and make the Bible say anything and make anybody a pre-existent Christ. But there are some le- more legitimate ones like that angel and also the captain of the hosts of the armies of God that appeared to Joshua. He, he, that would be a strong case. And often you, you'll see, uh, even in the Hebrew, the, 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 the angel of the Lord uh, and God is synonymously used, which also gives us an a, 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 a indication, but not to make every angel in the Old Testament a Christ. Yeah. It's a very good question. It's partly, it's used more in the Gospel of, of Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written more for a Jewish audience, and they try and exalt uh, the, the, the Son of God. The, uh, son of God. Um, Jesus was both divine and human. And that's why we not refer to as the body of Jesus, we're the body of Christ, because, because Christ took on a body, and as a man, he was the son of man. Um, but as the son of God, is referring to his pre-existent, uh, eternal place with the Father. But as son of man refers to his, his work on earth uh, here. Anyone else want to speak into that one? If you're sitting there with um, your head buzzing. One like unto the Son of Man. Yeah. Sure. Because he was um, in, in a human form. Yeah. See, when Christ was in a human form, he was the Son of Man. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a good question there. It's a good one to go and research out. But to, to, to your question, um, there was a, 
Matthew and Luke use the word differently to emphasize the humanity and the divinity. Yeah, okay. Any other questions? Rich, or comments? When the, when the uh, father sat at the first council in, just before this year, about 320 AD, they did have to sift through a lot of so-called gospels and stuff. And there were a lot of um, criteria set in place as to the authenticity of the book, as to the authorship, and as to the, the Christ-centricity of the books. And it's quite fascinating, like out of 240 chapters, that 220 have got citations. So in the same way that, that Esther nearly didn't crack the nod because it doesn't mention God, some still don't say it could be left out and it doesn't upset the uh, redemptive historical flow. And they're probably right, but it's there. And, you know, one day we'll find out that the Bible is both human and it's divine. Questions? No, they got the word Christos out of the word curious. Not Christos, Christ. Christ came from curious. Paul saw. saw yeah, sometimes there'd be Elohim. There, there, there is some discussion around where Elohim can refer to a person who's a messenger and an angel that's sent from God. But only the context can show you. Because if it's a person coming. Uh, it'll be more clear than, than if it's someone sent from God. C- context has to decide which those are. Anyone else? We've had a few from questions from the front here. Any other? Bernard? Yeah, yeah. I'd have to go, I, I do remember reading up on that, but I, I can't just suck that one out right now. Yeah, yeah, that one does, but how that happened, whether it was, it was the rock at different stages, and metaphorically it was referred to as the rock that followed them, but there were rocks at different stages, I can't quite, yes. S- sorry, sorry, Rose? Yeah. Uh, uh, they let it follow them, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's rich with symbolism, the, the, the rock itself. Um, um, yeah. I don't know how much to go, how far to pull this thread. It's like, how deep does this rabbit hole go? Anyone else? Well, they're very quiet at the back there. Come, who wants to give us the seven ways the New Testament writers drew from the Old Testament scriptures? Come on, you guys are getting married on Saturday. You should, you should <laughs> be thinking about anything except this. <laughs> Anyone else? Ryan, happy? Lee, happy? I know you've got a great book on this topic. 
the, the theologian herself, you've been very quiet. You've been sitting watching her. Hey, ha. You've been in church for about 75 years, <laughs> sitting under the gospel, um, allegorically speaking. <laughs> hey? And, and a, a subject like this is this, because this is not something you hear taught often about. It's not, um, we just take for granted. You know, the New Testament's the New Testament, and they heard from God. But yeah, they did hear from God, but there were ways that they, they showed integrity to the scripture, scriptures. And that's why a love for the whole word of God is an important thing. To love the Psalms, because they're rich with messianic language. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stevie? Because every, here's a great uh, quote. I have no idea where it came from. But not every verse in the Old Testament is about Jesus. But every verse in the Old Testament should lead to Jesus. Within its context, is it a type? In its context, is it a promise? In its context, is it a contrast? Is it a need that needed to be filled by Jesus? Is it a problem that only Jesus could solve? So is there a contrast? Um, and that's, a, that's fascinating to know that the whole of the body of the Old Testament Scripture, in its context, finds a lineage to the New Testament. And they are rich. Last one. You know, having a grasp of this topic gives you such a richness when you go to the Old Testament. You'll see things like you never saw before. You'll read passages like you've never read them before. You'll see uh, analogies flowing, types flowing. And they can, if we, if we keep within a, a framework of, of, of biblical principle, 
then we'll be safe. Because you can, obviously, if you start getting weird, you can leapfrog over anything in the Old Testament and land on the cross. But that's not the goal. The goal is to authentically integrate that verse in the big story of redemption. That's the answer. Well, I hope I've given you a little bit more than just intellectual knowledge tonight, but a love for God's word and a passion to want to pass it on. Can we stand up? As I say, there are notes up front here, and I think there's enough for everybody if you want. And the others are on the internet. So, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that when you met those men on the road to Maus, it says that their hearts burned as you were opening up the Scriptures. I pray for every person, every one of us, myself included, that you would cause our hearts to burn with a passion, with a joy, with a love. When we are devouring your word in our lives. In Jesus' name.